And we are live with our 53rd episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Hi. Uh, welcome once again. Uh, this is episode 53. Uh, so we're excited to have everyone back. Uh, we're especially exci excited to have Greg on the show. Um, had a lot of good activity the last week or so, right? Um, we had Chris on last week with a, a great podcast. Um, we did we did very little way, ways off the technical topics last week, um, but I think it was appreciated by a lot of us, even me and Ken, uh, especially just to you know talk about work-life balance and how to stay sane in the industry. So if you didn't listen to that episode, be, be sure to go back either on absoluteapsec.com or on our YouTube channel and find it. Uh, Chris is always full of good advice. So. Um, outside of that, uh, we've got training coming up in Tel Aviv at AppSec Global, uh, the event there at the end of May. Uh, we'll be doing Seth and Ken's Excellent Adventures in Secure Code Review. Once again, uh, teach you how, you know, the stuff that we do when we're conducting a code review. So you know, that that's our plug for this week. Uh, if you're going to be there, consider it. Um, if you haven't taken the course before, uh, it's a lot of fun for us to actually talk about that stuff. So. Um, yeah, outside of that, I think we've got the AppSec Minute today. Uh, we're on number five of the top 10 web hacking techniques, if I can talk this week. Uh, and as usual, Ken's the one that did the research there because I can't seem to get my shit together some days, but you know, it, it is what it is. I'll so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, and this is before we get into, because I'm really excited today because we have on Greg, uh, Greg Osa from, from GitHub Security from GitHub. Uh, he's, he's my boss. That's, I always like saying that. Uh, I feel like you had to do that, you know, disclaimer there. I have yeah, to. Yeah. yeah. So, so what, he twisted your arm. He's right, like, yeah. Ken, you know, I, I've like, been asking, you're doing this podcast. Yeah. I've been asking Greg. Time, so, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, you sync up performance reviews with, no, I've actually been asking Greg to come on for a long time. Cause I, we've got, we had so many people ask us about, like how to build an AppSec program. Like that, that's the number one thing that seems to always crop up. Um, and it always seems to be a situation where it's people who are like maybe themselves and one other person, sometimes just themselves and they, they're going to be able to hire some folks or spend, sometimes they can hire someone or they can spend money on tools. There's always these different situations. So yeah, like I think it's gonna be a really helpful one. We're gonna pick your brain. There's a lot you've done right, Greg. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to, uh, to dig into it. Before we do that, I guess we will get into number five of the Port Swigger top 10 2018 list of hacking techniques. It's a mouthful. So this one is, uh, I believe it's, so it's Franz Rosen, I want to say is the name. Um, and the the two things we'll, we'll touch on, because it's, it, it's modern, hacking modern web uh, modern web hacking techniques is basically the, the title talk. But what it really is, is um, using like, for instance, app cache with HTML5. And then separately, there's also a section in the talk on using post message to attack sites. So um, let's start with the app cache portion. It's an HTML5 feature. This was in 2017. This is just so everyone knows this has been fixed in all the four of the major browsers. Um, but at the time, basically what they found was app cache allows you to using an XML file, uh, specify a fallback URL. So let's say you visited a site, um, and you know, there's an XML file uploaded, uh, that an attacker controlled, they could set a fallback, um, URL. So this means if you visited anywhere else on that same site and triggered like a 500 internal server error, then you would, you know, your browser would fall back to making the request off to what it's ever in that fallback in the app cache. So what they found was if you, you know, cause with XML, you can also render HTML. So if you can, uh, if you can craft the cookies to be like these huge, large bits of data in, in the cookies, like it basically cookie stuffing, you just make a ton of data inside, you know, we have these overly long cookies. When you make a request off to a site with that, it causes the 500. So you use those two things in tandem. You have a fallback URL to the attacker site and you have cookie 
stuffing to cause a, the 500 request. So the browser reverts to that fallback. So that's the, the gist of the attack in a nutshell. But then what they actually showed in terms of practical attack was this was on Dropbox. Um, they were awarded like a 12,500 or 12,800 or something like that bounty amount for, for this. And what they found was they could host this XML fight, uh, file up on uh, Dropbox. They could do the cookie stuffing so that there would be a 500 error. They could set the fallback URL. And so once you've visited that site and or visited that, um, that XML file, and let's say you go to like click on next, the next thing you do is you try to click on download for a file, like a sensitive file, like a signed URL. And that is the only protection for that, that file. It's like that unique signed URL. What would happen is you would trigger 500 on Dropbox. You would send off the, your, your request to the, the, the fallback URL. And I believe it was in the refer or something along those lines where it would show the um, URL of the sensitive file, um, you know, this, the long, a long signed unique URL uh, to the attacker's logs. So they actually showed that in the uh, video. The, uh, so that was kind of the practical attack of the first piece there. Uh, the second piece was um, post message. And, and like, I, I think Greg, you had mentioned it, like pretty much my, also my knowledge of post message comes from this link, which I'll put in the, the chat, which is, you know, essentially post messages is used for course, for um, making, being able to make requests off to like, let's say I want to make, I want to call a function on a remote site. I can do that with post messages, not a problem. What you're supposed to do on the, like if you're receiving the post messages, you're supposed to check the origin, right? Like we don't want to just allow any site to invoke functions on our site. And we want to check the origin and make sure that it matches up with our expectations. And from a practical attack standpoint, um, the gist of that was there was some broken regular expression uh, in one of these post message or one of these sites that's receiving the post message, um, didn't, so it didn't check origin correctly. And then the, uh, essentially you're able to in, invoke some functions that ran your JavaScript code. So you could, you could do a, you know, you could do your typical alert, like document.cookie or document.domain or whatever as a proof of concept. Um, so that's basically like in a nutshell, um, what was discussed with post message. So that's kind of the AppSec few minutes, the AppSec minute. The AppSec, AppSec, AppSec minute rambling, is that what we should change it to? <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel like that that scene in, uh, what was it, Happy, or uh, Billy Madison, where he's like, we are all now dumber for having listened to you. <laughs> no, not at all. I Like that That was one that I hadn't dug into. I like I dig the whole app cache uh, you know, 500 error slash, I, I mean, it makes sense. Right. You know? And so like exploiting the two of them is kind of unique. So it's cool. Um, like I, I definitely think the list is still good, right. You know, what's coming out of port swigger there. Um, I know we had the other one that went this week, the XSS stuff that was posted yesterday. Like uh, it was in the Slack channels that we were talking about. Can the, um, Oh uh, yeah. The video that, uh, misfire that Jason and I can't remember who Neil. else were posting. Neil we're talking mm -hmm. about, right. That, that one's pretty interesting too. And maybe we'll leave that until next week. Cause that is like the whole context and how the parsers work inside the browser is pretty interesting. Um, but it probably will take a little bit more than just, Hey, it's reflected user input. Right. So, but so. <laughs> anyway, so that brings us to Greg, right. Um, and you know, like, and all credit to Greg, right? I, I give Ken and Jason and everybody and Neil, like everybody crap that they work at this like AppSec Wonderland over at GitHub. I don't know if you've heard that before. Yeah, I've, uh, I've heard murmurs of. of you've that. heard murmurs of that. <laughs> I don't know where it comes from. It's, it's just, it's, it's strictly jealousy and envy. So just, you know, it's fine, right? Like most of the places I walk into, I'm like, oh, ProdSec, you get to analyze, you know, here's three people and you get to analyze 400 applications every right. year yeah. and they're all high priority and you like, basically you have no life. So anyway, so yeah, I'll credit you building the organization out over there. Um, but, you know, first thing we always want to do is kind of get background, right? Sure. So yeah. 
where you started, what brought you into application security, and you know how you ended up where you're at. Yeah, I think um, so. I went to school. I got a bachelor's in computer science, and even in my kind of bachelor program, I went to Purdue University. And part of there, they have a kind of a research, mostly for um, graduate degrees and things, but serious is uh, C E R. Yes, I forgot how to spell it, but it's 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 a center kind of focused on security research. And this was uh, when was I was in college back in early 2000. So I was able to kind of structure some of my work outside of coursework, um, kind of focused on security, um, did some some interesting stuff there and then also worked for, you know, the campus. IT department doing security work as well. So I was kind of already able to find a little bit, you know, focus on security uh, through that research and then through uh, the, the, the IT job doing security, did some vulnerability scanning things. So kind of got, you know, even without, you know, besides a single course in, you know, computer security, got a little bit of exposure um, even during college. And I think, you know, curriculums nowadays. I actually taught a graduate course at DePaul focused on application security assessment. Uh, taught that for, for a couple of years. And it's kind of cool to see curriculums being, you know, offering more focused, you know, this is not just like, here's your one security course, all of computer science, and we're going to cover, you know, everything from IT security to cryptography to maybe talk about SQL injection, you know, maybe really focus on those buffer overflows because that's what we all spend our days looking at, I'm sure. But it's it's cool to see more kind of modern curriculums, you know, coming out around security too. But that said, background-wise, you know, I got a little bit of experience there, but never really thought of it as, you know, a career path, as this is something, you know, I would definitely want to focus on security or not. Um, so my first job out of college was working at, Motorola in Champaign, Illinois. And there I worked on pre-Android Linux phones. So if you haven't heard of them, it's not surprising. It did it not exist, right? Like, yeah. it, was, it had like a cool name, it was like the Moto Riser Z6. It ran Linux, it was legitimately running Linux. So this was Motorola's attempt to get off of their old crusty um, mobile phone platform that they'd use for things like the Razor and everything and move to something more modern. So it was kind of getting thrown into that was pretty interesting. It was, you know, kernel development and all this. And I, I started the team, you know, started on the team my first day and they're like, oh, I see you did some security work. So we have these new requirements to implement like kernel level access control around these DRM keys. I was like, okay, <laughs> like this is all new to me. So it was kind of an interesting, again, um, I don't wanna say by chance, but just given my previous experience really, again, focusing my work towards, you know, security. And uh, that was kind of, you know, some some interesting, interesting work there. Um, was only there for a few years until they closed the entire design center in Champaign. And then I was like, you know, it's kind of, you know, the whole, 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 whole campus got laid off and I was like, okay, what am I, what am I going to do now? And, you know, I kind of realized I really liked that, you know, security aspect. It's something I had a few years to kind of focus on. And I think at some point in a career and kind of coming out of computer science, maybe not, not completely, you know, a split, but you have to kind of say like, do I really want to focus on kind of the security side of it? Or do I want to just, you know, it's, it's, there's always a little bit of both, but I think like my focus was like, okay, I want to, really kind of dive into the security, application security, not do, you know, another, you know, strictly software engineering position, but get into security. And that's when I started uh, interviewing for, for a few different jobs and ended up with a job up in Chicago for a consulting company called Neohapsis. Um, if the name rings familiar, I think the, the most public, I don't know, I'd take that back. There's lots of claims to fame, but they ran a mirror of like the uh, a full disclosure and different security mailing lists for the longest they of time. Did. You know, I have yeah. to down. So it was the uh, yeah. So if, if you've seen the logo or heard the name, but maybe not have heard the of the actual consulting company, um, that was the the company I worked for. And I worked there for 
uh, for about three years, a little over three years. And that's really where I learned, you know, everything about application security. So that's kind of your traditional security consulting, you know, taking, you know, off the deep end of, you know, what's the engagement, you know, this week and what do I need to be an expert on by Monday so I can walk into a building and be the expert or at least seem like the expert until I can go back to my hotel room and, you know, really figure out what I'm talking about. So that was the, uh, I mean, it was- We've talked about this, by the way, on the podcast. As a consultant, this like is so common. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's definitely one way to to really get your bearings. And there was a lot of really smart people um, who had, who were working there and, you know, were, were great mentors. Um, and I really learned a lot, you know, from, you know, web application security to reverse engineering, just kind of, you know, anything sales could sell is what, you know, I was learning. So it was a really cool opportunity to, to learn all of that. And it was a really good three years. I think that, you know, also being in a consulting role, I think there's, um, you know, there's, there's more pressure, I think, to do research and to present, and do all of that. Um, so it really kind of pushed me to to get out there and do research and, you know, just, just kind of absorb the world of <clears throat> computer security and application security and network security, you know, at that, you know, that current period of time, you know, 2007 to 2010, kind of focusing on what the world of security had to offer. Um, and then, you know, I kind of hit my wall with consulting and traveling and all of that, and, you know, after, you know, I had my my first kid on the way and I was like, you know, not having to travel for consulting, you know, still being able to do security sounds like a good option. So started looking at places where I could work in-house and work for a, a security team in-house at a company and really trying to stay focused on application security. And I ended up getting a job at uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, so CME Group. Uh, in Chicago, so financial industry, and yeah, this is uh, you, you mentioned a little bit, you know, the the, the typical, yeah, rolling in. Here's our 400 apps. We've you yeah. know have have a AppSec team. Uh, you know, we have a general security team, right? Some people that have focused on AppSec, but really, it was like, how do you how do you even start scratching the surface with some of that, uh, you know, legacy technical debt everywhere? So it was it was another you know kind of a different twist on it was. You know, really kind of the the seeing what it, I think in consulting too, there's, you know, there's, it's, it's great. You get to find vulnerabilities, learn stuff, but depending on the engagement, right, it's, it's kind of the end of it. You don't really get to see things through. And this was kind of my option to see like, okay, we all know there's problems. I'm going to, you know, help find those problems, but also help find solutions and help, you know, the teams really um, understand what needs to be done and help them do that work. And so that was, um, I think I was at CME for, for a year or two. Uh, I guess I'm looking at my resume now. I got LinkedIn up, so I'm cheating. But I never remember like, when did I graduate college? Uh, so I was there for a little over, uh, almost, almost three years um, working on that. So as part of that, just a lot of Java apps. XXE was my bread and butter. It was like anytime like a new app, like it was like, you know, it was a financial industry. So everything was, it was either fixed fast or it was XML. And it was all Java and Java out of the box was like, sure, go ahead and I'll load remote files from anywhere. So I'll execute that as Java code, of course. Why wouldn't I? Because I'm an XML person. Um, so I think a lot of the uh, a lot of that was, you know, it was interesting to see more of, which I think you don't get too much in consulting, is just the the I don't want to say the, kind of just how teams work and how priorities work in the bureaucracy, not in a bad way, but any company, right, kind of has, you know, you know, teams have their prioritization and they have the reporting structure and they have their goals. And, you know, sometimes security doesn't, you know, is kind of an unexpected curveball, you know, of like, oh, now we have all these vulnerabilities. Let's get these fixed. And I think everyone wants to do the right thing. It's just a matter of prioritizing um, what that work means versus, you know, other risks of not getting development work done. You know, a lot of times like, well, we'll have to shut down our trading platform if we don't implement this feature by this day. I'm like, all right, you win. You get priority. Like <laughs> internal cross-site scripting can wait. Like that sounds more important. But it's like kind of navigating those waters and seeing, you know, there's, you know, how do you as someone whose kind of sole focus is on security, right? And I think that's 
I don't know. I, I like to think a lot of what I do and AppSec in general is just like glorified QA, right? Like we like to call it cool stuff, but really we're just sitting down, yeah. we're doing testing, we're making developers more comfortable with the products, you know, with the features they're shipping, right? But really we just have chosen to focus on security and become, you know, subject matter experts in that area. And it's like, where does that that work really, where does that fit into, you know, in the case of CME, you know, a very large engineering organization that already has all of its structure and, you know, it was very, very mature, I think, you know, they've been doing technology for a long time and that, you know, a lot of their development workflows and everything were pretty, pretty well um, matured. But there was never, you know, a specific AppSec, you know, there was, it was just like kind of the security team off to the side. And um, so it was really, really an interesting, um, interesting experience. Got, you know, more exposure to sitting down doing assessment work, you know, wrote, you know, I don't, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people in this space who have been at multiple companies at some point in time have written a report generator where you put your security formulas <laughs> in it and it generates a report. Like I, I swear I've written three of them. Luckily now at GitHub, like we have GitHub to do this for us. But it's like, it's like I wrote another report generator and it generated PDFs with, you know, some charts of risks and matrices of findings. So <laughs> I wrote one that's, at that, that's, every, every Every consulting firm has that on their backlog somewhere, uh, right? You know, they either have it like, Somewhat implemented, or yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, or internally, or you know, the, the problem at consult consulting orgs though is like once you implement it internally, they're like, how do we sell this and turn this into a product? <laughs> I'm like, you don't, you don't. It's gonna fall over if I do one more thing to it. <laughs> it gets the reports generated but, enough time for the customers. At least you're not trying to turn this into a product. <laughs> But but integrate it with Okta. Come on, it works right, just fine. Right. Yeah, no, it's like how we're gonna write a GRC platform and can this tool? I'm like, no, no, this just yeah. generates PDFs and maybe reports things out to Jira. That's what <laughs> I'm doing. Nice. So yeah, so no, this, I, yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say like the the whole like QA. Uh, you know, I, that that's one thing I like. I love to harp on is the you know the fact that we're glorified QA testers. And most of us do it very poorly compared to how the QA team actually reports vulnerabilities and does coverage and, you know, yeah. generates graphs of, hey, this is everything that we tested. This is where we found vulnerabilities, you know, and in security, we have a tendency to generate a PDF that has one finding in it. And that represents like a thousand hours or whatever, right? Like worth of like testing and all these test cases and Nah, we didn't document any of that, right? Right. Yeah. So, we get we get to feel special though, because we do non-functional testing. Right? Right, there you right. go. It's in, in, integration it's testing. Our discretion. It's like well, I looked at it for a few hours, and this is the result. Like, consider that coverage. So, yeah. <laughs> I remember doing consulting once. I forget it was for a large industrial company, and you know they're contracting us to do a, an application assessment, and they're like, okay, so like we're gonna need your test matrix of all yeah. the. To test, and we're like, oh, I'll send you my my. It wasn't burp, but I'll send you my Peros proxy logs. Like, does that, count? Does that count as my test cases? And they're like, sure. I was like, okay. <laughs> and they accepted it. Yeah, like yeah. I, I had I had one of those just recently, right? Where they're like, hey, we need to know all the tests that you're going to be running. I'm like, I haven't even logged into the application yet. I'm like. Uh, no, right. this is the answer that you get from me. <laughs> you know, can you give me your unit test cases? And they're like, well, we haven't developed those yet. And I'm like, yeah, they like, there we go. Right. You know, <laughs> nice try. Nice try. I'm not going to engagement. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, sure. I can get you those, but that's going to cost you another like 30 hours worth right. of work for me to develop that all. So. Just send them a yeah. recording of you testing. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, there you go. That's going to be super interesting. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, um, I didn't mean to interrupt. Keep no, going. no. Um, yeah, so I was at CME for uh, almost three years, and then um, one of my one of my friends, um, actually someone who I taught uh, at our DePaul assessment course, uh, Ben Taze, went over to GitHub, and he was kind of their first uh, application security hire. So he. Um, he had worked at Neohapsis after I had left Neohapsis, but a uh, really bright guy. And uh, he went over there as their first AppSec hire, and then they were looking to build out the team. So he he reached out to uh, to me, and yeah, I was like, okay, well, this is, you know, CME was 
pretty pretty comfy and cozy and it was you know we're making good progress but uh, the the allure of i guess the github at the time very much was you know this is back to kind of like the bare bones kind of the groundwork of you know building out this company when i started you know github github was in its phase of you know we don't have a management structure you know are kind of known for that you know and you know just presenting across the community and you know it was a really exciting place to to kind of come in and kind of start start you know see see what the landscape was like there and see where we could where we could guide it so i started there um let's see i look back at linkedin in july 2013 so almost uh, i guess almost 6 years now it's coming up coming up close on 6 years um and again yeah as the uh it was myself and ben as kind of the two hires focused in application security and then there um was Sean who's still my boss um I guess he wasn't my boss at the time because there was no management um kind of leading security globally and then another employee focused on uh incident response and that was the extent of the security team at GitHub at the time and so so even then it was kind of cool to say like okay we have a security team of four people and two of those people are application security you know focused on application security and then um a longtime friend actually someone who I worked with in Motorola at Motorola uh kind of tangentially it was I was doing development work and my friend Patrick Toomey was on the actual security team doing assessment of the work I was doing so he I was in Bloomington and he came down from like Chicago as like their security assessment team so I was the one at that point being like under the security review uh, microscope. It's funny. I, I worked with him at Neo Hapsis, um, and then he ended up joining GitHub as well. Um, a, a few, say a few months after I did, maybe like five or six months after I did. So, so there we were a, again, a security team of you know five people now with three people focused on AppSec. So I think maybe that was maybe a sign of you know okay, this is. I think a, a lot of times. Right, I would say our responsibilities spanned a lot broader than what we've been able to focus on. Um, you know, it, there was still a lot of you know op operational security and all of that. You know, the responsibilities, but we 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 all had that background specifically of application security. So, in in the early days of of my time at GitHub, it really was you know assessment work and architectural changes to say like okay, we have these six different ways that we are authenticating, you know, outside of, you know, stateless authentication across the app. Let's sit down, think of best practices and do the engineering work to rip all of that out and replace it with, you know, a standardized method of authentication that we feel comfortable with and that we, we feel like will will provide an API that won't be messed up during developers, you know, a well-documented API to, to create, you know, to, to do stateless authentication. And we we're able to do that. You know, we were able to sit down at the, at the time it was mostly just, you know, a monolithic app that ran all of GitHub and was written in Ruby on Rails. And if we wanted to do something like, you know, replace all authentication tokens, we did it. And we sat down and, and did that project, and then a lot of lot of other kind of just architectural changes um, to help you know make make the app more securable um, in the future. And you know other other things too. I think before I started there, um, GitHub rolled out content security policy, and so after I was there, it was you know just a matter of at that time content security policy in the spec i mean even today it's still in flux right so as the as the spec was changing and introducing um new things you know updating our policy to to be in line with that or you know to to enforce as much as you know we possibly could in that policy um so yeah a lot of you know both doing assessment work of new features and of new services and also doing um, a lot of that architectural uh, security work. So uh, refactoring our, all of our authentication flows so they all log the same way and just all sorts of um, just trying to wrangle where the app was at that point in time uh, to, to have better APIs and be easier to work with without introducing security vulnerabilities. 
Yeah, that's just interesting. Post the link to the CSP oh, yeah. post. Uh, sorry, the, the the GitHub's post CSP journey article. Yeah, I think there's a. I don't know. You get the. I don't know if you search GitHub and CSP now. CSP is too popular. Um, so 2013, Jeff Peak actually uh, did the original blog post. So 2013 was when we. Uh, when we actually, when GitHub, before I was there, actually rolled out CSP. So that's pretty interesting. I forgot, I don't forget what the policy was. Um, at least I had a defined script source. So uh, it's probably matured since then, but it's kind of cool to see, you know, it's been in place since 2013. And by having that in place, right, and it buys you a lot from, <laughs> it's, it's much harder to make, uh, I don't know, to, to make concessions when you already you have to make a policy more permissive than wanting to make it more restrictive for something that's already in place, um, it's a little easier to say like, "Oh, we want to, you know, we don't want to introduce this risk instead of we really want to disable this functionality so we can decrease our risk." So it's having having that foundation and on early on, um, it was really helpful. You know, at least at least around you know CSP and and things like that and kind of our our posture on you know how our how our JavaScript gets sourced in and things like that. Yeah. When you started building the program, I mean, was it was it more focused on application assessments, or did you go? Was it more like oh, we need to shore up? Because I mean, when I say shore up architecture, what I mean is you, you talked about adding CSP, but also there you know like having um, files hosted through. Um, the the render app for for instance like those types of changes were those more of a focus or was it a mix of the two yeah it was all over I would say it was you know a pretty pretty solid mix between assessment work and um, you know product features I mean there was a big push for when we launched I forget what version of GitHub Enterprise but um, rearchitecting GitHub Enterprise so um, I mean, traditionally we always had this issue in GitHub Enterprise where legacy, legacy versions of, of, of GitHub Enterprise where, you know, the content you hosted on just was on the same domain as, you know, the main GitHub app. So GitHub Enterprise is, I think we now call it GitHub Enterprise Server is kind of our on-prem version of GitHub. So the early versions had this issue, architectural issue, right? Where, you know, if you had cross-site, if you hosted, get, you ran GitHub pages on your enterprise instance, obviously you can run JavaScript and, you know, it's like cross-site scripting as a feature if that's on the same domain. So we did a lot of architectural work to extract out those subdomains um, from the main app and have some of this is how we protect ourselves in production. You know, you run on, you run GitHub pages and it's on github.io. You upload a file or you, you know, you download a file from a Git repository through the web flow and it goes through GitHub user content. So we did, that was like kind of one of the big architecture changes, right? It's like, let's start isolating all of this user content from our main authenticated domain, github.com. And so again, that's like another one of those architectural changes that I think we we implemented at that time. Just, you know, we kind of, you know, instead of trying to constantly fight the, well, how is the browser going to interpret this, you know, raw content file, is it going to, you know, do some some content sniffing and, you know, execute JavaScript from it? It's like having that on a domain that's isolated from where our authentication lives was, you know, kind of a kind of a cool area where we could add more defense in depth, even if we did everything we could to, you know, properly escape things or force downloads on, you know, file downloads and things like that. Yeah, and I think that like that isolation and CSP, people talk a lot about, you know, when we talk about XSS, like the difficulty in, like it's easy to introduce without browser, buggy browser behavior. But then when you, it's kind of like you touched on it for a second there, which is browser from one release from standard that's been updated to the next can behave completely like different. There are little nuanced things that can get introduced. Like you could be doing pretty much everything right, but then there's like some weird behavior that somebody uncovers and then you're like, crap, you know, now you've got to worry about that. And, but if you have like the, the, if you've got CSP and you've got um, some isolation, you've bought yourself architecturally some 
-hmm. some protections against that stuff. If you had to go back from the beginning, like, would you focus, would you, would you choose one over the other? Would you be like, look, before we do assessments, I just want to like dig right into like, you know, where can we improve architecturally and, and, or would you do something else? Would you implement training to begin with? Would you do, um, would you contract out to vendors? Like what, is there anything you would have, you know, knowing what you know now, go back and, you know, say your, your first six months would have done maybe differently or, I mean. No, I think, I mean, I think it was actually kind of important that we were, we were doing both at the same time. Um, you know, I think a lot of the architectural changes, right. Or, you know, we ran across and said like, oh, we have these 10 different authentication tokens, right. That was kind of the result of us sitting down being like, oh, hey, I found a vulnerability in that authentication token. How do we prevent, you know, this in the future? So it's really kind of the vulnerabilities identified during that assessment work really help drive, I think, a lot of that, you know, the the development work and the engineering work to say, okay, well, we've done X number of assessments and we found issues with people, you know, using, um, you know, raw in their ERB templates to output things unescaped because they think that they're, you know, correctly, you know, they're just either throwing around raw, not really knowing what it does or marking things as HTML safe when they're not actually. So it's like, what's the best thing we can do in these cases, right? And that that was the, the, the situation of sitting down and removing all of our calls to raw, actually <laughs> using, you know, the, the, you know, the, the correct uh, APIs to build out the DOM and things like that in, in ERB and in Ruby on Rails, and then saying, okay, raw is no longer the, like allowed. You should, there should never be a case where you are directly bypassing any sort of output escaping. Um, or encoding. And yeah, so, but it was the identification of vulnerabilities that really led to, okay, this is a pain point and we should focus here. Or there's been a lot of vulnerabilities introduced, you know, around, uh, say, OAuth flow, but I don't want to get into that. Yeah. Nobody does. (laughs) Behaving in unintended ways, right? It's very much (laughs) URL parsing between server-side libraries and client libraries. That could be um, you know, it's like, well, how do we architecturally get rid of that? Unfortunately, that one's still uh, still a tricky point. Uh, so I think it really is the the assessment work either drives or helps reinforce, you know, the, the architectural development work and saying, where should we focus our, our time and features? And I mean, I think, I, I don't think I would do it differently. I think that, you know, at even, you know, at that time at GitHub as well, and I think something that's changed, right, is I came in, you know, as, you know, with, you know, five, six years of AppSec experience at that point in time. And I was still like, I like, I was new to Ruby on Rails. You know, there were a lot of people at the company who, you know, core Ruby on Rails contributors who knew the framework and everything and, there was a lot of, you know, where I could say, okay, cool. Like I'm going to do my best to apply the knowledge that I have in application security, but as far as writing secure code for new features, you know, I'm, I'm going to lean a lot on the developers. I'll try to ask the right questions. I'll try to, you know, I guess just make sure that everyone's aware more informally than a training program, right? But through assessments and things like that, kind of bring awareness to certain vulnerabilities or certain areas to be careful at. But, you know, the developers were kind of the, and still today, I think, like the developers are the experts on writing the code, right? <laughs> writing writing yeah. code in, in a correct way, right? I think where, where a lot of AppSec comes in is to making it, making it clear and being the experts on what that means from a secure perspective. What does it mean to write secure code? Like what certain things need to be considered for, you know, certain certain decisions when writing code. And I think even early on, that was kind of, the, I'm not going to be able to, you know, assess everything. So I'm going to rely a lot on the developers and figure out the best, you know, groups of vulnerabilities maybe to look for across the code base and then from that, you know, developing some of the some of the product and internal, you know, development work across the app. Well, that kind of brings points. us. Oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> yeah. no, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say that uh, that comes into play. Like uh, Omer had a question, right? He was on the show a little while ago around security champions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, like, it, first of all, I wondered if you did have like some sort of a security champions program. I don't know if it's that formal for you guys. Like, I don't think we've ever really talked about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the other thing you wanted to know is t- um, how do you go about and encouraging devs to participate in that sort of a situation? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. What is their responsibility, and what do you what do you do to encourage it? Yeah. So we don't have. I mean, it's it's. I'm sure there is a GitHub issue in the AppSec repo at GitHub about security champions. That's at least four years old <laughs> plus. About this idea of you know in having a more formalized definition around what you know a, a someone in the engineering organization that you know takes on some amount of similar threat modeling or just kind of AppSec knowledge and responsibility. And we don't have a program at this time. It's something where we're still tracking, we still see kind of the need. And there's been there's been no reason why it hasn't been done just because, you know, besides everything, all the other work, I think infinite time and resources, I think there, you know, there would be, be something, um, you know, a formal program where we can offer guidance because we see it informally, I think a lot. Right, we see developers. We see certain developers um, across the organization that we know. They, they kind of know the sort of reviews we do. They know the the areas where we're kind of experts in, and know the right time to reach out. I think, and um, I think also part of that, you know, they 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 understand, you know, the process of doing a threat model and worrying about kind of these, you know, non-functional test cases, if you will. These, you know negative test cases of it shouldn't do so that they they instead of just you know looking at how the the feature should be implemented can can look at it and say okay well what sort of things do i need to be careful about or avoid and i think we're we get that in the organization just through how we do i think assessments at this point um you know reaching out to teams um working with teams uh to do you know very specific appsec reviews on new features that are shipping and things like that. And that's, you know, a conversation, you know, meeting with, with our team and with the developers to do threat modeling. And then through that, right, you're, you're building up those, uh, I don't think the developers don't leave those meetings without ever thinking about, you know, kind of that threat model or the risks discussed and things like that. So there's a lot of knowledge sharing, I think that goes in to those meetings, but it's, it's by no means a formal security champions program. There's just, engineers across the organization that constantly reach out or that we've worked with in the past through AppSec reviews, maybe to work through, you know, specific vulnerability or things like that, where, you know, the next time around, they, we've, we've built that relationship, you know, we've had those interactions and they're aware, you know, of, of the right questions to ask. And if they don't know the answers to reach out to us. Yeah. I mean, I think that's crucial, right? Any security program is those relationships are really what drives it all. Um, and the the good ones that's where that's where I see it actually happen is the developer. I mean, no developer wants their code to be the mm-hmm. the culprit for getting hacked, right? right? They don't, right? It's 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 too public at this point, and you know, even if they don't get fired over it, it's just a, a huge knock to their craft. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, I, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, and it just yeah, just I think it just boils down to the fact of just awareness, right, and kind of understanding. Yeah, what what the AppSec team can offer versus, you know, what they what they don't offer or what they, you know, or what developers can kind of you know work through on their own. And I think that's kind of kind of a tricky balance, you know, especially now at, at GitHub at its current size, right? We have so many, you know, changes and features being shipped. It's you know, how do we? What does our role really become? Our role isn't reviewing every piece of code. As it goes out the door, there's or before, well, ideally before it goes out the door, I guess. But yeah. the you know, there's just not you know now we're and I guess maybe to go back a little context of um, where how the teams have grown. But so I had mentioned Ben and Patrick and myself kind of starting uh, starting out you know AppSec at GitHub, and then there was a point in time when we realized okay, this product development work, this you know developing security features is a completely different kind of workflow than doing a separate yeah. work. And at this point we had kicked off, you know, I already started the bug bounty program. So we're getting vulnerability reports and doing triage 
um, on that and, you know, third party assessments and things like that. So I kind of have all of these various sources of vulnerabilities coming in, um, code review uh, still going on, right? And then actually trying to scope out, you know, well, I actually need to sit down and do this development work, right? That's like completely different scoping and workflow and kind of structure of that job. Whereas the security work is very interrupt driven, I would say. Ideally development work is not interrupt driven, right? So we we took the path um, for the team for, to kind of split it. And this is where we are now. We have a ProdSec team, which is led by Patrick. Ben's on that team and they have, they have more people on that team now, really focused on the, the development work. So developing either, you know, be it new features, implementing new browser security features, you know, spinning up new services that provide um, an, an architecture for developers to do security things, you know, correctly. Like we have a service to do, you know, encryption and developers never have to touch that. And we provide APIs. So it's, you know, kind of all those kind of tricky things that we don't want developers working on, but want to provide them good libraries or good architecture to use it. Um, they've been focused on that work. So, and then same thing with user facing features. So features like, you know, your token alerts, if you, you know, commit a GitHub token and it gets revoked, you know, and then we automatically revoke it and kind of all those features of, you know, kind of spanning the, the range of architectural security and user security and really making, you know, focusing on that as an engineering team. So it's an engineering team that still lives under the security org. Um, but they're very focused on kind of product features or internal architecture um, kind of changes. And then AppSec is all of the kind of assessment work. And that's the that's the team I lead. That's the team that uh, Ken's on. And again, focused on kind of everything else, right? It's bug mounting program triage. We run, um, I think also one of the things that we started kind of early days, but have continued running um, automation, right? What automation can we do to, to help supplement our manual review? Is there some amount of automated assessment we can do um, to, to allow us to at least have an indicator that this is code we want to dig deeper into? And that's been kind of important um, kind of side. So we, we have a lot of internal, we still do development work, but it's internal tooling to either do um, you know, automation of stack analysis, fuzzing, um, or even just tools to assist with our own internal triage. Um, so we're, we're writing tools right now internally to do, you know, how do we mass triage outdated software vulnerabilities and track that triage and work on it. So we have all these kind of things that we've identified um, where automation would help. So we still do development, but it's not production development. It's not product development. Um, it's very focused on uh, a lot of the um, tools for the team. So still do assessment work, threat modeling, bug bounty, all that good stuff. And that's been in like the AppSec bucket of work. Okay. There was another question that came in just along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, what would what would be get best guess for amount of effort spent on education for developers versus building the architecture for them to implement new features with security integrated? So I, like, I know you're not running the ProdSec team, but obviously you do a lot of developer outreach, developer, you know, communication, you know, so how much time is spent on that versus, hey, we're going to architect you a new feature rather than just having you like build it yourself? I think it's, I think they're kind of two separate. I don't, I don't know if they're two separate, but there's two answers to the same question, right? Or it's same end goal, right? Is not reduce yeah. vulnerabilities. I think it's, it's a question of can you actually implement, you know, a service or an API or a library that would prevent, you know, architecturally prevent this. If not, like mm-hmm. let's educate developers on the on the sharp edges of these APIs, document them, make sure we're covering them. You know, we have knowledge on the team of, you know, here are the things in our own review that we need to, you know, we need to identify, but then also make that, you know, it's everything lives on GitHub. So nothing's kind of siloed away to the you know, AppSec secret sauce. So we want to also provide those guidelines. And let's say we do a threat model of something and we're like, oh, we see you're introducing a new API endpoint. Like here is our guidance, right? Our documentation around things you need to consider either from 
our perspective to look into kind of globally as a threat model or even specifics like I'm in, you know, this kind of tricky API, what sort of things do I need to consider? So a lot of our developer, I guess, uh, education efforts have been kind of, I think for the most part, very informal. And we're, we're making kind of progress to formalize that more and more. But we've kind of realized just with our resources and bandwidth, like sitting down and saying like, we're writing, we're making a course on X, right, is really hard to schedule and do. We've done some internal, and this this lands on the AppSec team we've done. Uh, Ken actually has been uh, working on kind of these internal, right, like brown bags. So we have a 45 minute, you know, training session where, you know, there's a specific area of concern or one of these sharp edges, or maybe we've had some, you know, recurring, you know, vulnerabilities in either through internal assessment or the bug bounty program presenting that topic, you know, for whoever can attend, keeping that collateral around. And then when we run into it or we do a threat model or developers thinking about something, they can say like, oh, I remember, you know, there was some brown bag about, you know, specific authorization issues around this stuff and giving something for people to reference back to. Um, And that's really, I think, for any training we've done, um, we always try to create some sort of collateral that, some sort of reference that can be called back to, because I think having people in a room is a great way to, I guess, get initial excitement, get initial awareness of things, but that's not when the developer is sitting down and writing code. And if, even if they can think of like, oh, I kind of remember something about this, having, having some detailed documentation they can dive into. And, you know, that documentation also to be very explicit about the gaps saying like, oh, hey, here's the generic cases. If there's something else there that you're unsure about, just reach out to the AppSec team, right? Another callback to, it's like kind of the, the fail safe of any documentation, right? Is like, yeah. here's some stuff we can think of, um, but worst case scenario, come talk to us and we'll have a conversation about it. Well, and that goes back to like earlier in this conversation we were discussing, you know, having developers, right? Um, building in the security protections architecturally, like, but like, for instance, overridden methods that are secure or methods. Um, I don't remember the exact name of, of one of them. I think one of them is like safe link to or something. Um, and then that, so you've got developers who, you know, built that to be safe and then referenced in the, the documentation. So for other developers, so it's kind of like a full circle. Yeah. I think the, you know, the other important part there too is kind of the static analysis and automation. So, so let's take like a you know, safe link to, or say we have like safe redirect to, right? So Rails has a redirect to method. You give it a URL and it'll happily redirect you to wherever. So we're like, okay, well, this seems like a good API to try to harden to make it harder to introduce open redirects. Um, so we wrote a, a, a new helper method. I don't know if it's in, I don't think it's in Rails proper, uh, safe redirect to. And what that does is we have a list of whitelisted URLs that you can redirect to. So GitHub properties and, and things like that. And everything else you have to explicitly state like, no, allow this, this domain. So we can now say, all right, everyone should be using safe redirect to. There shouldn't really be any any reason not to use it. The API is flexible enough to opt into special cases and we can allow that. Um, so now it's a, method, a matter of like, okay, well, we still have this redirect to API laying around here. We should, we should. And so what we do is we then introduce automation that says, okay, anytime we see a pull request or a commit that introduces redirect to, we're going to comment on that and say, are you sure you want to use redirect to, or you basically say you shouldn't use redirect to check out our documentation here as to why that's a bad idea. And you should be using this new safer API with this calling convention to explicitly state if you want offsite redirect. So we've kind of gone again, like Ken mentioned, kind of full circle of, you know, doing the architecture we work, work to make a safer API educating developers even during the development workflow of like, you just did this, you know, this could lead to a vulnerability. Maybe it doesn't, right? It could be completely safe. It could be a static URL, but you know, in the end, like use a safer API, whitelist that URL and everyone's going to be happy. We don't even have to get involved at that point, right? Our bot goes out and makes these comments, right? And if everything's straightforward and 
we don't get down to the else clause of ask AppSec, then we don't even have to be involved in these discussions and developers can kind of self-service to the documentation and gain awareness of these APIs um, that maybe they weren't aware of when they were writing this code. Yeah. So, I, I mean, a lot of that, it sounds like there is a lot of automation around kind of the build process as well, you know, whether it's regexes or, hey, you know, uh, I mean, obviously, Breakman's you know does some stuff, but you're you're searching for other things as well, like the raw instances. I know it pulls that out, mm -hmm. but the redirect stuff, uh, you know, you're you're kind of creating these anti patterns of, hey, this is bad, so I'm going to do a GitHub issue and comment on it and let the developers know, so it, you don't involve your team mm -hmm. until you absolutely have to. That's that's kind of the the impression that I'm getting, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, just kind of a, so so basically what we do is we scan. So anytime a new pull request is open, we use pull requests for all of our workflows uh, to commit code um, and commits are added, you know, pushed to that pull request. We look at the new code being modified or added, right? And yeah, we run Breakman across like, here's the previous report of Breakman, here's the current report of Breakman, what are the new findings? was that, you know, that must have been introduced in one of these lines of code and will comment directly on the pull request. So it's right in kind of the developer workflow. And, you know, if it, kind of the same as if we were doing a manual review, right, we would be sitting down looking at the pull request, right, you know, adding a review um, to that and adding a comment on the pull request. So our automation is doing the same thing. So it follows kind of the same workflows that, you know, people don't have to now get a failed CI job log into some other tool or download a Breakman report, parse through the Breakman report and see what's new and see what's been added and what, you know, what we're actually talking about, right? Here, CI failed, why, right? And it's more very targeted to, you introduce this line of code, here's our concerns about it, you know, you know there's, there's some rules that we directly get CC'd in on, right? That we don't want to, have be you know self service right? You're changing the content security policy. We get CC'd in on any time yeah. the file that defines the content security policy gets modified because we want to know about that, right? Developers might be adding a new host, you know, just for for completely you know innocuous reasons, but it might have an impact as to what that host might be, where it might be. So that always kind of needs our review. So we have kind of just different ranges of how we get, you know, how worried we are, how involved we want to be in uh, when we do this alerting in the kind of in the development process. Cool. Yeah. I, I mean, it just, it keeps going back to the, the fact that I, I feel like, okay, as a consultant, I walk into places and, and I mean, you, you did this at Neohapsis as well. And it's just always the, man, what, what is the, like, what's the biggest effect that I can have to actually help secure this application and you guys are definitely on the, you know, the the builder side of that, right? You're able to actually see the whole process, the CI/CD pipeline. That's something that I don't get into a lot of the time because it's more that assessment side. I'm just looking at it after it comes at it comes out the end, and like being able to affect that change on a larger level is is awesome. But then I also think about the larger institutions, right? Mm -hmm. Great. You guys are rails focused. It's very easy to concentrate and build new APIs around the one large framework that you're targeting. But a lot of those like FinTech organizations, right? You're, you've got everything from rails to go to node to the old Java and .NET applications. And it's, it becomes a much more difficult or a much more complicated process to build something like that. Um, so that's like one thing we're actually, you know, part of like our, our growing pains current state, right, is we're no longer a Ruby on Rails shop, right? We are, yeah. very much, you know, current day GitHub is all over the board from you know, a lot of Node apps, we have a lot of Go apps. So we're, you know, not only have to build, you know, for, for some of us who've been at the company for almost six years, like, well, I got to start learning Go, I have to, you know, and not only building our own skill sets, but along with that, building the same amount of guidance that we have for, you know, the monolith for Ruby on Rails, same amount of automation. So that's like actually one of our near-term goals is like, okay, let's find a couple languages and frameworks that, you know, we we see have, you know, high penetration at GitHub and start building that those same resources for those frameworks and languages. Um, and even as things move towards a more kind of, you know, service oriented architecture where we have microservices and, you know, our yeah. calling out the things like what new, what new 
feature, internal features, you know, architecturally, do we need to start introducing to, to allow those new services to be built, you know, secure by default and with all of the same, you know, all the same consideration as, you know, a new feature or new code that's being added to the monolith. So it's definitely, it's definitely a point at, yeah, we're, we're not quite at the point yet where there's a little bit of everything everywhere. We're still in the process of building that, you know, that 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 landscape. But hopefully, along the way, we can do the same sort of work that we did for Ruby on Rails, but for these other frameworks, and um, you know, offer the same guidance for those apps as we could, you know, for our for our monolith. Yeah, I always go back to the the like the Netflix model of building out their happy path, right? I mean, I know they speak, they talk about it realistically in the context of like their AWS instances. Like this is how you go deploy an application in AWS and this is how you do it securely. Mm -hmm. But realistically, what you guys are doing is, hey, in a code, from a code perspective, we're doing the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. You go do X, Y, and Z and you will never hear from us, right? Because mm -hmm. we, we we already know that that's secure. We've built this stuff for you. We've looked at it. If you do it in the right way, guess what? Go and, go and do whatever you want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's always hard to support that across multiple languages because, I, I mean, your staff has to scale. That's, right. that's realistic what happens right yeah your expertise so but well greg we've been going for over an hour oh. uh, which is crazy to me right but this is how it always goes you yeah know, can, we, we have this problem every single week every time it feels like we just started and <laughs> well yeah. it's a good problem to have right better than the uh the awkward silence otherwise <laughs> the awkward sign. I mean, we could build some of that in if we, right, yeah, it, yeah. Right, you know, just stand here, sit here and stare at each other, see how people <laughs> like it. Maybe, you know, viewers would go, our viewership goes up. Right. Nice. Um, um, yeah. But uh, speaking of which, you know, awkward silence. And so, um, yeah, like I'm, I'm trying to think if there's any like last minute questions that I wanted to get in there, but it, you know, it feels like we've talked about quite a bit. Um, you know, recommendations, right? Like um, maybe that's it. Like if there's a couple points that you could recommend to the viewers as far as like either starting a program or even getting into the industry, you know, what would those be? Yeah, I think getting in the industry, I think is kind of like, I think for my story, I think it's a little, I don't know, I don't want to say lucked into it, but just kind of naturally went that way. I think what we're seeing a lot though is the resources, kind of like I mentioned with coursework and curriculum, get into those, you know, courses, see if application security is an area that, that is interesting. I think also though, just the prevalence of bug bounty programs really has opened the door for people to do this work, get recognized for this work and, you know, obviously do this work in a, in a kind of way you can put on your resume instead of bragging to your friends and IRC. So I think there's a, there's a bit of that. It's a great area to get into, I would say. Um, if I was getting in this field, you know, even, you know, in a, in a separate job or maybe in an engineering role, you know, look into bug bounty programs, see, you know, see what you can learn and, and work there. And also, you know, within, you know, as an engineer, you know, how in your company can you start focusing on security work? You know, if you're already doing engineering work, um, could you, you know, even if there's not a formalized security champion role, you know, is that, is that, you know, kind of responsibility you could add to, to the work you do to start focusing you know, in that, in that area. Um, and then recommendations for people kind of starting off, I would say, start thinking about kind of those foundational things, right? And it's like, look at your apps, you know, look at your app or look at your apps, right? And say like, okay, this is, you know, 20, 2019, you know, of this app, what is this going to look like in five years? You know, assuming everything goes well, this app will be alive and continuing growing in five years. And thinking about what foundational things could be started, you know, could, could be introduced to allow that to grow in a way that's just not, you know, completely unchecked, but, you know, keep, how can you make things securable as they, as they grow and develop? And I think it is part of that, writing those APIs, figuring out, you know, what, what are developers stumbling with? Um, security-wise, when they're introducing new features, and how can how can you give them confidence and um, just make it easier to make the right security decisions? Um, yeah, I think that's uh, I don't know so, some of the recommendations there. <laughs> no, no, that's all good, right? You know, I, I mean, we've talked about bug bounties quite a bit, and you know, some of the other stuff. So, but um, it, it's always good to have a different perspective on that and where that actually fits. And 
Um, and even the, like, what do you do inside of an organization? Um, everybody's always asking because everybody's building a program at some point, right? They may be in a different phase of the SDLC, but they're, they're involved with it somehow. So great. Um, oh, one great. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming. Plug too. We are hiring on the team. Okay. So yeah. We have a, a position open. I'll just, uh, you know, drop that link there on the, on the chat if you want to be A little bit of promotion, um, but it's, of course. it's a team doing AppSec work. So, yeah. Where's so, the, uh, so if anyone wants to join the AppSec fantasy land, talk right, about yeah, yeah. Greg, right? right? Or see see how much of a fantasy land maybe it's not. Yeah, no, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's only it's only from the outside, you know. Right, it's, yeah. yeah. Where did you post the uh, the link there, Greg? I, I uh, dropped it in the chat on the YouTube video. Okay. okay. Uh, I'm new to this YouTube thing, so. Yeah, what is YouTube? Yeah, we'll make sure it drops in there. Cool. Uh, before we, we wrap up, we'll, we'll make sure it's associated with the, oh, here we with go. the, the episode. Um, but yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was great talking with you guys. And uh, yeah. Yeah, hopefully we can do it again. Um, I don't even know, Ken, like uh, um, next week. Um, uh, yeah, good question. I'm not sure yet. Let me pull that up because. Um, and by the way, the, the yeah, yeah. By the way, the um, oh, next week's Tim Tomes. Tim oh, awesome. Tomes. So maybe we'll hear a little bit about um, CSP. Kevin Cody's cores attacking cores talk. I think. Yep. Um, and. Uh, Maybe some updates on what's going on with Recon NG. Um, yeah, like uh, that should be good. And as you said, we've got training in late May in uh, OWASP uh, EU, which Tel Aviv is not necessarily EU, but okay, that's where it's at, um, which I'm good with. Whatever. Sounds cool. And uh, let's see, Locomocosec, I'll be at um, not next week, the week after. Um, and Greg, are you are you going to be at any conferences? Usually, we like to if you're going to be somewhere, we like to tell people where you're going to be. That way, they can stalk you and uh, follow you yeah. around and make it no, real weird. No, no conference. I don't know. I'm not going to make it out to Locomocosec. Now, now I'm feeling uh, like I'm missing out now by not not doing that one again this year. Great conference, but uh, I'll miss Hawaii. But wasn't able to. This year I would have had to do a family vacation too, and we just couldn't get it scheduled. So there's no way I was going out there without uh, bringing the family along. So it's great. A uh, great conference, though. Yeah, yeah. No, I got away with it last year, but not this year. So <laughs> not having it. So especially when I posted that picture of where we were working at on the uh, <laughs> on the water, it's like a 360 view of like this beautiful water and beach and yeah so best conference room ever yeah <laughs> yeah exactly like a legit like a coffee shop down below too so it's pretty good i was i was happy ocean and coffee so <laughs> yep cool well they'll find you online then um yeah, we've absolutely. posted your twitter account and you know everything but uh yeah yeah like i won't be at Lokomokosek either so i got that whole like Fear of missing out stuff going on, but you know, Twitter, family but... and life, right? So. <laughs> cool. All right. Uh, thanks everybody for joining us today. Uh, and we'll see y'all next week. And don't drop off quite yet, Greg. <laughs> All right. Bye, everyone.